Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlisle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guest today is Dan Rasmussen of Dad Capital. He's got a new paper out called Counter-Cyclical Investing. We're going to talk about Dan's uh, modification to Ray Dalio and Hedgeye's approach and uh, as, a, as a counterpoint to his crisis investing paper, this is going to talk to you about talk, talk about what you can do through the full cycle. It's a fascinating discussion. It's coming up right after this. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquires Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquires Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquires Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. So you've got a new paper out uh, on counter-cyclical investing. What's the, uh, what's the thesis? Yeah, so this started from, you know, I think if, if folks have been following for dad or my research for a little while, it, it started with their idea around crisis investing. Um, and we're small cap value uh, investors, micro cap deep value investors. Um, and we have obviously been plagued by the same thing everyone has been plagued with, which is small cap value not working for the last few years. Uh, and it led us to say, well, when does small cap value work? Or like, how do we know when it works better? Like, how can we be confident, right? Because, you know, you can say, well, small cap value is the best performing strategy over long periods of time. We'll say, well, not over the last three years. <laughs> so you got to have 10. some, yeah, or 10. So you got to have some sort of thing that says, well, these are the, this is the reason it hasn't worked and this is when it's gonna start working again. Uh, and what we, what we found, which was really cool, was that small cap value seemed to work really well in the beginning stages of an economic cycle. So if you started from the middle of a recession until you know, the economy got going again, that, those periods accounted for about 70% of small cap value excess returns. So small cap value um, really is all about getting these crises right right you and and you want to buy in at the bottom of a crisis and you know and hold on in that early stage of the cycle well okay great well how do you know you're at the bottom of a recession um and you know the cool thing about that is that it's actually obvious okay so it's like the one economic condition you you, you know you're in right you know you're in the middle of a recession well how like what well, your mom's calling you or your dad's calling you to ask them whether you should sell stock right like because it's about to be a great depression. When you get that call, you know you're in a crisis, right? You open up the Wall Street Journal, and if the front page headline is really big and says something about the market going down, you basically you know you're there. Um, now, the indicator we like, which is, is a really beautiful, wonderful economic indicator, is the high yield spread, which measures the cost of borrowing for uh, high yield borrowers minus the, the treasury rate uh, on an option adjusted spread basis. Um, and what we found is that, you know, that's a really good recession indicator. In fact, Ben Bernanke did a huge amount of his academic work on it. So it's, it, you know, the Fed is watching this, academics are watching the group at Harvard who's obsessed with it. I mean, it, it's a really wonderful indicator uh, for all sorts of things because it measures liquidity in the economy, right? How much are people lending? How much are they investing? Um, and that's nice. It's a, contemporary, it's a contemporaneous. It's like right now what's going on with lending. And I think I have a very credit-oriented view of the economy. That credit is what drives um, uh, drives the economy. Uh, and so, when the credit markets are ripping, the economy is ripping. When credit markets are tightening, you know, the economy is going through a tough period. So, what we found is, if you looked at just when spreads are above six, uh, six hundred, um, 
that's you're basically in a recession and that basically is a really good time to buy small cap value it's also a really good time to buy virtually anything illiquid so what if you're in bonds you know the lower quality bonds in stocks the smaller and the cheaper um, and even if you look globally like going and buying emerging market stocks as opposed to developed market stocks gets more interesting at times and the high yield spread is wide um, so all of these things are sort of related um, and once we figured that out and we you know we've been executing on that thesis um, uh, it's played out you know perfectly during coronavirus right so if you went and uh, you know in March of last year April May you know any time in that period and bought small cap value and the cheaper and the smaller the value stocks were the better you did over the next 12 months it's been a massive massive rally and just you know, perfect example of how these types of factors work coming out of recessions. Um, so then your question though is, well, what do I do when it's not a recession, right? And you add sort of two, two prevailing, two, two kind of governing concerns, right? One, um, I wanna do something smart when we're not in a crisis, right? So I wanna be choosing assets that are gonna perform well in that environment. And overriding concern two is I wanna have money to buy small cap value at the bottom. So I, I want to reduce drawdowns, right? I want to eliminate drawdowns, not eliminate, can't eliminate drawdowns. So I want to reduce drawdowns so I have capital to deploy um, when others don't, and I can go, go buy small cap value. Um, so, you, you know, you can think about this, um, you know, I have a variety of influences, but, you know, one, one influence for thinking this way is, is Seth Klarman and Bowpost, right? You know, to, to simplify Bowpost's model, and, and I, I'm sure he would hate to be described this way, but you know, think of a seven-year business cycle, right? Bowpost is holding 30% cash, 40% cash for the first five years. So the S&P goes up and, you know, Bowpost goes up a little bit less and then and then the market crashes and Bowpost doesn't go down anywhere near as much. And then Seth Klarman goes and buys like a crazy amount of distressed securities and, and bargains. And then he just rips out in year seven. And over that seven-year business cycle, Bowpost comes out way ahead even though they lagged the market for five out of seven years, right? They were just too conservative. They're you know quite conservative in those good years, but that was what allowed them to capitalize on that opportunity. So you take that sort of idea or framework, right, of like be conservative in good times. You have cash to deploy, uh, and then I marry that with sort of you know Bridgewater, which is where I worked briefly when I was younger, um, of thinking, okay, well, can we do better than holding cash, right? Is there something you can do better than holding cash? There's got to be something that works, you know, from um, uh, sort of middle middle stages of, of, of the business cycle to the end um, that's better than cash, right? And what might those be? And how could you incorporate other asset classes, whether that be treasuries, uh, whether that could be real assets? Uh, and then I think the, the next sort of prevailing, you know, the next big question I had, so with, with that as sort of a starting point was to say, everybody's talking about inflation, right? And I think to have a true full cycle model or to really think through investing over the full business cycle, you gotta have an answer to inflation, right? What causes inflation? When's it going to happen? And what am I going to do about it if I if I detect it is coming? Uh, and so that was really the, the genesis of this paper was to try to answer those questions um, and to answer them as simply, thoughtfully, um, and empirically as as possible. Let me just take you back a little bit to the uh, to the high yield spread. Um, you say. Six percent or six hundred basis points is sort of the the trigger point for you. I, I've I've looked at that spread. I'm pretty familiar with it. It's 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 very volatile uh, over over an extended period of time. When it spikes, often it does sort of spike very meaningfully. What what's the significance of 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 that point? And do you, do you have any sense of how much time it spends above that 
uh, yeah, above that point. It's an arbitrary point, to be honest. It's 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 a it's a round number, but it's pretty close to one standard deviation above the mean. So you're talking, you know, fifteen to twenty percent of the time, you're above six hundred basis points. So, um, so it's a nice, you know, it's an extreme market condition. And you know, is it impacted by the, you know, we're in a we're in a uh, a regime with very low rates. Does that is it do, do, does the signal become less useful in, in this sort of regime? Have you looked at it over sort of more extended yeah. periods? Well, you know, I think one testament to that not changing is how well it worked during COVID, right? Like, you know, it was a great indicator during COVID, right? It spiked up massively and then it came down uh, just as the economy started to recover and the market started, or actually anticipated the market recovery. Um, and I think it's it remains the best indicator. And remember, it's a real market indicator, right? You're just saying, well, you know, how are high yield bonds being priced relative to treasuries, right? And and that, you know, no one, it's, it's pretty hard to manipulate that, right? Like, that's real lending activity, it's real investor dollars. And yes, you know, the Fed could go and buy high yield bonds. And maybe they did a little bit of that, really, they threatened to do it, and they didn't do that much of it. But, but still, that's having a real impact, right? That's going to reset the prices of borrowing. And that has a real world economic impact, right? If borrowing is easy, um, fewer things go bankrupt and more projects get financed and there's more growth. And conversely, when, you know, lending is really expensive or limited, um, uh, things don't get funded. And that is, again, real world economic implications it's called the financial accelerator. So I think that it, 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 um, it is not diminished in its use as a signal. Um, uh, and I think the other signal, which, you know, we, we found was useful is, you know, think of when high yield spreads are wide, that's the governing decision maker, right? Just go buy illiquid, risky assets when spreads are wide. It's a really, really good trade. When spreads are narrow, um, that's a more complex set of decisions. And that's when you have to think more about real rates and uh, where the yield curve is and some other economic variables, which are less less predictive than the high yield spread. The high yield spread is wonderful. It's really powerful. And it predicts like a whole range of asset classes. Um, other economic variables are much weaker and, and, and predictive signals are less weaker than the high yield spread. So you, you you had a you had a, this crisis investing was an earlier some earlier work that you did and and you recommended when when you get into that uh, when the high yield spreads are spiking then you go to the things that are the most terrifying assets in the in the world which would be a liquid small ca uh, small caps and uh, high yield bonds and so it makes perfect sense that those things would be completely abandoned and they would recover the fastest but as you as you point out you have this. Um, it's an infrequent event, and you need something to do in the other in the other time. So the new paper is this counter cyclical look at asset allocation, uh, and you're using these business cycle indicators, which I think are kind of interesting because they're um, they're widely available indicators. And the two that you like again, it's the high yield spread, and then you're looking at the shape of the yield curve. Is that the uh, that's the is that the ten and two, or are you, are you looking at something more yeah, complex we, we than use that? Yeah, the ten and two, but I, you know, it's interesting. So, so the, the slope of the yield curve, we easily could have substituted out just the short interest rate. But, you know, th that's really what drives the, the slope of the yield curve. Is very is is all the volatility is driven by the short rate, um, and um, and so that's what's really driving. So you could just say our rates high, our rates low, um, and and that would be equivalent to saying you know where's the yield curve. Who's the gentleman who, who wrote his PhD thesis? And there's a Cam, I'm a bit blanking on his last name. Do you know who um, I'm talking about? He did it. He did a little tour. He was on Meb uh, Faber's podcast a, 
a little bit before the blow up saying that he, that he had seen the inversion and it was anticipating. So, I mean, it had been very wow. predictive. Yes. Yeah. So, so this is, um, inversions are a special case, right? Where, where rates. So, um, let's, let's set those aside because it'll lead you to some wrong intuitions, but, um, generally I think the way to think about this is that, um, let's, let's, let's just talk about nominal rates, right? Nominal treasury rates um, are uh, a proxy for nominal GDP growth. So there are, two, there are two elements to it. There's the real rate, which is your GDP expectation. And then there's, there's your inflation expectation. And those are both priced into treasuries, right? Um, so you can think of when um, spreads, when, when, when rates are really high, um, uh, uh, which would mean that short rates are really high, which would mean that the yield curve is flat, um, your inflation expectations are high and your growth expectations are high. So those are times, again, when, you, when you'd expect to see inflation, inflationary uh, pressures, inflation assets doing well. Um, the inversion happens when rates react to that inflation expectation, and then they go too high. And that's when people think that there's sort of a tip over in the cycle. Um, but mostly you should think about high short rates or a flat yield curve as, a, as, as the market pricing bullish inflationary things. And conversely, when rates fall, um, uh, the market is pricing either a collapse in inflation expectations or, or, or a collapse in real growth rates. Um, and what makes treasuries work really well in an asset allocation framework or why they're really interesting um, is that um, at least for the last 30 or 40 years, inflation expectations and GDP growth have been very correlated. Um, so when there's a recession, expected inflation falls and GDP falls and treasuries soar, right? That's why they're such a wonderful um, uh, uh, counter uh, cyclical asset class to own. Um, and I think there's a lot of concern now with people saying, well, gee, you know, owning treasuries, are they really gonna work as a head? You know, gee, you know, shouldn't I be selling all my bonds? Rates are so low. Um, and I go back, this is Irving Fisher's idea, a brilliant economist and Irving Fisher, right? Has this idea that treasuries are, are real rates plus inflation expectations. And so you have to ask yourself, which part of that is wrong, right? Let's say, you know, is it that um, uh, treasuries are, uh, are, are predicting too low GDP growth um, or are they predicting too low inflation, right? And, and those are your two choices, right? And I think if you look at, you know, where markets are pricing things, the, the treasury market is saying growth prospects don't look very good over the next few years. And inflation looks really dampened and maybe even deflationary over the next few years. And that's what's being priced into the treasury market. So you have to cover the thesis that that's wrong. But certainly, I think if there's a recession, um, growth expectations and inflation expectations both are going to go down. So you know, I think there's still a, a very important role for, for treasuries and portfolio and for using that as a signal, right? That's the market signal of growth and inflation. Uh, and it's a very powerful one. Your countercyclical paper proposes an alternative to a 60-40 bond portfolio, though it's an asset allocation. And I, let's just let's just discuss the. Um, so you say based on the two the two elements that we've discussed, the high yield spread and the shape of the yield curve. Sorry, I'm I'm I've confused a little bit. That the the two things that you like are growth and inflation, and you you then high growth, high inflation, low growth, low inflation, and some mix of those two things gets you these uh, uh, these four quadrants. Yep. Do you want to just walk us through the four quadrants? And this is based on the Ray Dalio framework. Yeah, sure. So this is a great, simple framework for thinking about 
um, what asset classes do well in different environments, right? And so you can think about rising growth or falling growth, rising inflation, falling inflation. Um, and, you know, all economic environments can be divided into those four quadrants. So it's a really useful way of thinking because the um, combination of those economic factors, you get different, each decade, you know, you get a different set of cards, right? So in the 70s, you know, you were getting a lot of low, you know, falling growth, rising inflation, right? Stagflation environments, right? Um, in the 2000s, you had two big recessions, right? So you had two, two big sort of falling growth, falling inflation periods. Um, in, you know, this decade, right, you've had rising growth, falling inflation, right? So you, you've got these different combinations, but those are the those are the defining parameters. And so what you really want to understand is, well, what's going to do well in those uh, environments, right? So if I'm thinking, gee, you know, I, I don't think last decade is going to be, you know, we're not always going to be in a falling, a rising growth, falling inflation environment, right? We could see a decade with multiple recessions. We could see a decade with stagflation. We could see all sorts of different combinations of economic conditions. And I should be prepared for all of them somehow. Um, uh, you, you'd want to start from saying, first, can I understand what does well in those environments? Uh, and then two, I want to understand how to predict them uh, or how to understand which environment I'm in. So I think, you know, you can start off um, with the growth, the rising growth, which is um, uh, rising growth. Think of this as the, the early stage of economic recovery, right? We're in a classic rising growth environment right now uh, and have been since March of last year, right? Where uh, everything is looking good um, and getting better, right? So what asset classes do well in that environment? Um, well, the answer is relatively simple, stocks. Um, now, small cap stocks do the best, um, uh, but large cap stocks, growth stocks, value stocks, it all does well in these types of environments. Um, conversely, uh, 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 bonds don't do as well, especially treasury bonds, right? As growth expectations and inflation expectations rise, um, so do yields, and so treasury bonds fall. Um, and then, you know, I'd say that as you get rising inflation, right, so we're in sort of this, re people are calling it sort of a reflationary environment, right, where you're recovering from a, a recessionary period. Um, you also see certain, um, uh, certain commodities do well. So the economically linked, the growth linked commodities, your oil futures, your copper futures, et cetera. Um, uh, as, as, as that economic recovery continues, those, those asset classes all do really well. So when you're in a growth environment, um, which you can think of as, hey, start from the point where high yield spreads are at 600 bips and, and, and go forward, right? Those are the asset classes you want exposure to, right? You want to be as loaded up on small cap stocks, on value stocks, um, to the extent that you want real assets in your portfolio in the, in the growth link commodities. Um, and you want to have a really light bond allocation um, and if you're going to own bonds, you know, uh, bias them towards, you know, high yield bonds, which have a big growth component. Um, so that's, that's sort of that first, you know, environment, which is, you know, broadly the, um, what Dalio or Hedge, I would call quad one and quad two, right, which are the, the growth quads. Um, and then you have two other economic environments, which is where things get tricky and, and more interesting and more complicated. So you have your stagflationary environment where you have rising inflation and falling growth, which uh, is quadrant three uh, in Hedgeye and, and Bridgewater terminology. Um, and that's an environment where a lot of things that uh, 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 people hold don't do well, right? So you have rising inflation, so that's gonna hurt your bonds and you have falling growth and that's gonna hurt your stocks. 
Um, so you're sort of in a trap, right? Your traditional assets just aren't helping you all that much uh, and it's quite painful. So what do you do? Um, and the answer is that um, it's all about real assets. So, so gold is especially good, but um, all of your sort of real assets. Now your, your issue with energy and copper and some of the other growth linked runs is right. This is a falling growth environment. So, you know, it depends is the inflation force, inflationary forces enough to overwhelm the falling growth. What type of inflation do you have? So gold is really good for a lot of different, you know, environments like this. Other commodities are good. This is not saying most people own in their portfolios. And there are a lot of reasons why they don't own them, which we can talk about. Um, but those are really the only things that do really well um, in these environments. Almost every stock and bond portfolio, other than that, is going to suffer in this environment uh, to varying degrees. Um, and then you've got quadrant four, which is your, your falling growth uh, and falling inflation environment. Uh, and in that environment, it's all about bonds, especially treasury bonds, right? Treasury bonds are going to do really well, right? Because as growth falls and inflation falls, yields, you know, real yields and, and inflation expectations fall. Um, and so bond prices go way up, right? So you really want to own bonds in those environments, right? So you, you should think of, you've got your bond heavy uh, environment, you've got your real asset heavy environment, and then you've got your stock heavy environment. Um, and, and that stock heavy environment is, you know, call it 50% of the time. And then you've got your other two environments where um, you're going to want to own real assets or bonds. How often are you switching from one quadrant to another? Yeah. So, so, you know, what we looked at is, is then this sort of a separate signal. It's like, okay, now that I know that, um, gee, you know, how do I sort of puzzle through what environment I'm in, right? How can I predict it, right? Cause it's all well and good to say, wow, you know, ex post, yes, obviously bonds do well in a recession, but if I can't predict recessions, well, who cares that bonds do well, right? Cause I, you know, I should just have a fixed allocation or, um, or, you know, um, fine real assets do well, but if we have a deflationary environment the last decade, I'm going to be pretty unhappy with the person that told me to own commodities as against inflation, right? So in my view, you know, you've got to have a way of, of predicting these things. So that's where we come to the high yield spread, right? High yield spread is really good, right? When the high yield spread is wide, um, uh, uh, um, it, you know, you, you're, you're generally in a, in a growth, you're, 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 you're in a recession, right? And then the future, the forecast is for a growth environment. Um, and, and the direction, you can also look at the direction of the high yield spread. So as the high yield spread is tightening, right? That's generally very bullish. As it's widening, it's bearish. So you could both look at the absolute level and the direction, and that's going to give you a pretty good growth indicator. Um, and then for inflation indicators, you know, it gets much harder, really much harder, right? Inflation is hard to predict. There are different types of inflation. Um, the only people who have lived through an inflationary people period are people that grew up in emerging markets, right? There are not developed market, uh, you know, investors uh, who have been investing since 1980 have experienced inflation. So um, uh, so, you know, there, it just gets a little bit more complex. You have to use a variety of indicators. Uh, a simple one is real rates. So, uh, you know, or is, is, sorry, is, is, is the slope of the yield curve or, uh, or where short rates are, right? So higher short rates, uh, 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 a, uh, a flat yield curve is going to be in a more inflationary environment. Um, a very steep yield curve, which means, you know, low short rates, that tends to be a more uh, deflationary environment. And then the other thing you can look at is, um, you can look at the trend in the high yield spread, quite a good indicator as well. Or you can look at the trend in commodity prices, just another indicator. What, what, uh, and what, tre are, what trend are you looking for in the in the high yield spread? Is it yeah? How are you, how are you using that? 
tightening or wide, tightening or widening, right? So as the high yield spread widens, that's deflationary, right? You're you're limiting you're limiting the uh, availability of credit in the economy, and as credit gets limited, uh, inflation falls. And then conversely, as spreads tighten, which means you're increasing the amount of credit in circulation, that's generally inflationary. Um, and you know that if you use that indicator to trade ten-year treasuries, it works amazingly. If you use it to trade commodities, it works amazingly. Um, it's a really, really good uh, indicator um, uh, uh, for for thinking about inflation. Uh, you also talk about trend. Uh, I, I don't know if it's in this context. So I think it was that you were using even the two hundred day in relation to the S and P five hundred. But you may do you use it in other contexts as well? Yeah. How are you using it? Yeah. So in, in, in that context, we'll talk about inflation, right? And thinking about what drives inflation or how to predict inflation. Um, trend is, is valuable, right? It, you know, the trend in commodity prices, the trend in the high yield spread, it's a really good indicator for the direction of inflation expectations, right? So I think trend is, is really important there. And you can use that to trade some of these inflation linked assets, right? Um, now, there are different nuances to it, but gold is a classic one, right? Gold is a very trending asset. When gold prices are going up, they're going up because inflation expectations or devaluation risk or redenomination risk fears are rising. And if you buy gold as they're going up, you do well. Conversely, when gold starts falling, it often keeps falling. It's, it's a very trending asset. So trend following gold is a really useful way to think about whether you're using that as a way to think about when inflation is happening uh, or whether you're just using it because it's a good strategy that works in gold. It's, it's an effective way of doing it. Um, but we also talked about trend in, in another context, right, which is we talked about one of the big goals of this counter-cyclical approach is to limit drawdowns uh, and to limit drawdowns with the intention of having a lot of money at a time of crisis to deploy into small cap value and high yield bonds and other risk assets. But to have the money, right, you can't have had a big drawdown. Uh, and that's what trend following the S&P 500, that's where we use it in this context, right? So trend following just says, you know, when the price falls below the 200-day moving average, um, sell and go to treasuries um, and wait to get back into the S&P 500 until the price of the S&P 500 is above its 200-day moving average. Um, and the 200-day moving average is arbitrary. You could look at three-month momentum, six-month momentum, 12-month momentum. You know, the moving average rule is basically just saying, you know, let's pick an average of all the time horizons during this period. Um, uh, but the essence of it is that it kicks you out when, when volatility really spikes um, and the high you know, and, and, and the S&P 500 starts in some, you know, sharp drop, trend following kicks you out enough of the time to really save your bacon. So it's a dramatic reduction in drawdowns because you're, you, you know, you're getting kicked out after 15% or 20% drop, not getting kicked, you, you know, you're just not there for the next 20% drop because your, uh, your risk rules kicked you out. Um, and the interesting thing about that, right, if you if you run a regression, this doesn't really show up that well in a regression, right? It's not a um, it's 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 not it, basically what it would tell you is you're going to you're going to lose a little bit on your expected return. So um, my expectation about trend following and using trend following uh, in this context is not that it's going to increase your return. It's not a return enhancement device. It's entirely about preventing drawdowns in large cap equities. Uh, and thus having money to deploy into crises, uh, which if you're good at crisis investing and you think you've got high conviction in those environments is a very useful thing. I've played around with trend following a little bit just to sort of understand how it works. And one of the observations that I had when I was doing it was that um, you get different 
you'd get different results depending on how often you're consulting the signal. How so? If you can, if the signal is consulted once a month, you know, then you run the you. That's that sounds like a sort of a pretty good period, but you run the risk that the day before or the day of the signal being given, when you make that decision, you're not quite under the 200 day. So you're on and then you catch that month of drop. And then at the bottom, you know, this is the really the only time that trend following. When I when I look back using that sort of look back a one month period using the 200, it might've been the 10 month, I can't remember. It's the same signal essentially. There were really, it works very well in the US in other markets like Japan. Really the only time that didn't work funnily enough was 1987, which is when a lot of the trend following guys seem to have made their, have made their name. How, how do you recommend implementing that kind of idea? Yeah, so it's, it's not a fail safe, right? I mean, it, you can think of it as a dirty hedge or a low cost hedge, right? Is it perfectly effective? No. Um, but does it cost you that much? No, right? And it, it's it's very low cost. In fact, over some periods, it enhances your long-term returns, right? But it's, it at least seems like it's a almost zero cost hedge. But at the times when volatility is the highest, as long as that, as long as that um, drawdown comes over a you know, decent period, right? If it comes in a day, trend following is gonna help. If it comes over five days or a month, right? Your trend, the longer the drawdown takes, the more likely trend is gonna help you. Um, and since most of the really big moves have taken you know, a little bit of time, um, trend has really, really helped you. Um, and again, I, you know, I don't think um, you could do, you know, I, I, my, my, my view is you don't wanna get too much into data mining, right? You want really simple ones. So, you know, we tested three month, six month, nine month, 12 month momentum, right? So is the price below where it was three months ago? Was it below six months? Was it below nine months, 12 months, right? You're getting virtually the same answer. The 200 day moving average is nice just because it blends all of them. It just says, hey, you're kind of looking at the whole past 12 month period and, and roughly where you are relative to the average. That's why I like it. Um, but again, you know, you could try to data mine it and say, oh, you know, the three month is so much better than the six month is so much better than that's kind of BS, right? You're just looking, what, what's the point of what you're trying to do? You're trying to get out of this low conviction trade um, uh, when volatility spikes, right? Um, and that's it. One place that it did work really well, and I know that this is a, a fund that you run. I looked at it in Japan because I, I, I always thought the challenge with Japan was that it was probably obvious in real time that the market was extremely expensive in much the same way that it, everybody sort of knew in 2000 that there was a bubble in the States. And it was like a hundred times in, in Japan. And I thought that the beauty of it was that it allowed you to stay invested through that entire run-up. And then as Japan sort of fell over in, in the late 1980s, it did sort of take you out. And the difference in returns is striking because the market fell so far and has taken so long to recover. Yeah. And it's sort of the, the return line goes up to the very peak and then plucks you out and then allows you to sort of remain above the fray yeah. until you get that opportunity to reinvest. Yeah, this is such a good point, Toby. And I should have, I should have thought to go there earlier, but um, you know, if you think about the two big problems, I think facing investors today, right? Um, it's, you know, overvalued equity markets, right? I think we're all looking at these multiples. We're all concerned, right? If you're not concerned, you're not, you're either not paying attention or half your portfolio is in Bitcoin and, you know, whatever. Um, uh, uh, and then I think, you know, the other big concern is thinking about potential inflationary risk, right? And so I think you got to ask yourself, what am I doing to repair? 
Um, what is my strategy for dealing with these things? And the thing I love about trend following, right? And I did this piece uh, uh, about bubbles. Um, and I actually went back and I had an intern um, uh, uh, look back at the macro commentary of like 10 great investors, so, you know, Dalio, Peter Lynch, you know, all these guys, um, uh, Bow, Seth Klarman, right? And they all started calling a bubble in like 1995, right? So if you're smart, right, you, you see these things way early, right? You're like, oh God, value, Tesla's way too expensive, right? Or, you know, uh, gee, you know, the fangs, oh my God, you know, who would pay that multiple of sales? Adobe, MasterCard, Visa, right? You, you kind of go through the list, right? And you would have said these things were too expensive in 2018 or, you know, 2019, right. 2017, right? And they've just kept going up, right? And the beauty of trend following, right, is that trend following says, you know what, just own the trend, right? Just, just own the NASDAQ, you know? And, um, and, and what allows you to do that is, right, you're acknowledging explicitly that the reason you're owning it is because it's trending, right? The reason I own Visa or MasterCards, they've gone from trading at, you know, six times sales to nine times sales, and they might well go up to 12 times sales, right? Or that type of trade, right? And you're just saying, but if they start going from 12 to 11, I should probably get the hell out because this isn't a fundamental conviction thing. And I, I am worried about valuations. Um, and trend following, whether you're talking about Japan in the 1980s, the NASDAQ in the 90s, um, I think it's just such a beautiful tool um, for exactly this moment in, 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 in our you know, market uh, economy, right? And I think, you know, Toby, you and I, right, who are, are value-oriented investors, right? Values at a dark winter. Uh, now, it seems like we're in the spring for value, um, but if you think about that period from Q1 of 18 through Q1 of 20, when value is just the worst possible thing to own, rather not, <laughs> um, uh, 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 you know, gee, you know, you, you would have said, well, um, all these guys that are owning the S&P 500 or the Nasdaq or things that look or, or just a software-focused fund, right, are just doing so well, and I'm doing so badly, and you know, why not just own some of that, right? but explicitly say, you know what? I'm going to be the first to get out when it stops working. Because the only reason I'm owning it is because it is working. Because I don't have conviction around these multiples. And how could you, right? It's just too expensive. But trend is a great way to rationally participate in the market while knowing um, that you've got protection in the event or a plan, a plan to protect your portfolio uh, in the event that that cycle and that valuation cycle turns. Uh, let's talk about Japan a little bit because that's a you have a Japan value fund and um, what's the what's your approach there? What what are you looking for? And how, yeah, how's so, the sort of portfolio constructed? How do you think yeah, about Japan? It? Japan is a, a is a, a really fascinating market, right? Um, it's uh, it's a big market, so same number of listed tickers as the United States, um, but many many more small and micro caps. So. It's, 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 you know, they're called 2000 small and micro caps, right? So really big, deep market. Um, it's also really, really cheap, right? So, you know, and you can look, whether you look at the large caps or, or, or the small caps, right? Like Activision Blizzard trades at, you know, 22 times EBITDA, Nintendo trades at eight times EBITDA, right? Virtually anything you look for has an alternative in Japan that trades at half the multiple. Um, and so if you like small cap value at six or seven times EBITDA in the United States, you're going to love it in Japan at three or four times EBITDA, right? It's just a, a brilliant market um, for, for value. Um, and part of that's just that there's such a plentiful abundance of stocks, right, uh, to choose from. Uh, part of it is that they've had this, you know, bubble in the 1980s, and then this, you know, uh, 
lost set of decades uh, where the stock market has gone sideways. Um, uh, the other, you know, two really interesting things to think about with regards to Japan. One is there's no bankruptcy or essentially no bankruptcy. So, you know, you think of the downside risk in owning smaller micro cap value in the United States being, okay, you get a zero, you were just wrong, the company blows up and you lose all your money. It doesn't happen in Japan, right? Companies live forever, right? The average age of a company on the market is like 50 years, right? They're, they're just around forever. The government will bail you out. The government will really bail you out. Like in the US, we talk about bailouts, but the government doesn't actually like, you know, that's a crappy industrial company that you own uh, that goes through a troubled period. The government doesn't actually step in and give them a, a zero interest rate loan to bail out their operations and go buy a competitor, right? Like that company goes bankrupt and goes through restructuring and that's creative destruction. It's great for the US economy as a lar at large, but it also is really screwy for your portfolio risk management as a small cap investor. Um, uh, and then the second thing about Japan is that it's an export. It's a cyclical export-driven economy, um, exporting into Asia, right? Big exports to the US, to Europe, to China, uh, all over Asia. Um, so it's really linked to the global macroeconomic cycle. When the cycle is ripping, um, these Japanese you know, net export companies are ripping as well. Um, when the economy suffers, uh, you get big you know, drawdowns. Um, but again, because of lack of bankruptcy, those drawdowns and earnings don't translate into drawdowns uh, in the equity market that look anything like what you see in the US. Uh, and you also get this flight to safety impact with the yen, where the yen spikes in times of volatility. So you're really cushioned by the currency, uh, which also provides this really nice, uh, nice ballast to the portfolio. So Japan, really cool, really interesting diversifying place for value investors and, and uh, you know, a big, big focus area for me. I saw some research. It's a, it's a while ago now, it might be a decade old. I had it on the old Greenbacked website, but it was a study conducted in Japan just using simple uh, price multiple, you know, price to sales, price to earnings, those sort of um, metrics. And they had found that value worked really well through the entire period that, you know, it's been a real nuclear, a very long nuclear winter for that index. But underlying that index, there's been some great performance. If you're a value guy there, you've, you've done fairly well. Has that, that, that research is probably 10 years old now, maybe even more yeah. than that. Is, that. is that still the case? Is that? It still holds uh, with, with the exception of like ev where everywhere else where value didn't work, right? This Q1 of 18 through Q1 of 20 uh, uh, period where um, uh, in Japan, it was, it was uh, you had the trade wars with China and then you had coronavirus. So, you know, those, you know, those hit real earnings. You know, I think J Japanese corporate earnings were down 50% from 2018 to 2020. So, you know, brutal, That's a big hit. drop, right? So yes, buying value, which tends to be cyclical companies that are, you know, uh, you're, you're betting on mean reversion of earnings, right? Earnings didn't mean revert, they just went down. They just got punched twice in the face. Uh, and so, um, but now, I, you know, now you say, well, gee, you know, is coronavirus getting better? Yeah, probably, right? Are trade tensions with China going up or down? Probably down, right? Uh, is the global economy rebounding, right? So could we expect to see Japanese corporate earnings rebound to 2018 levels? Yeah. What would that look like? A doubling of earnings, right? Would that be good for value stocks? Yeah, probably. Um, so I think it's a very, uh, it's a very interesting time to be investing in Japan. You sort of alluded to it earlier, but the criticism of Japan was that cross shareholding and that inability to sort of release any of the capital or have any sort of rationalization of uh, capital structures and businesses. But there seems to have been this, um, I haven't followed it that closely, but I've just read enough articles over the last maybe five years or so that, that 
perhaps that culture is changing and I don't want to suggest that it's as a result of Americans like activists moving in there, but there, there might be some of that happening that they've, they've had to, I'm sure I've read a number of articles where they said they've had to modify their approach, but they are finding some success. Is that, are you seeing that happening? Yeah, I think that's definitely true, right? So there's definitely, uh, you know, look, Japanese CEOs want to make their stocks go up too. Uh, and, you know, there's a method for making your stock goes up, which is to, uh, you know, follow these shareholder friendly practices and they want to do it too, right? Uh, they're not idiots. Uh, and um, so that is happening. Now you have to remember that that's still a second priority, right? So yes, it, it is a priority. Yes, they do care. Yes, they are moving in that direction. But the first priority is lifetime employment guarantees and stability, right? And so, you know, you, uh, yes, they'll move in this direction, but without sacrificing core Japanese values like lifetime employment guarantees, right? You're, you, you know, you're not going to see Japan wholesale adopt like U.S. incentive comp and have some, you know, family-owned Japanese microcap paying their CEO $20 million a year. It's just not going to happen. Those aren't Japanese values. Um, but, you know, on the margin, are they going to move towards, you know, maybe having some independent board directors or maybe do an increase in the dividend? Yes. And those things are happening and they're good. Um, but I think, you know, even without those things, you know, sorting by price to book multiple works really well, right? You don't need those <laughs> things to happen. You just need value to work. And Jap Japan has been a great, great market for value. And I think we'll continue to be. Cliff Astness had some research where uh, Japan had been one of the places where momentum didn't work. And so he, AQR, looked at some of that research to say, uh, I think that they decided ultimately that it was just, it's, it's, it's a statistical outlier. It's just, you would expect that if you have something that is, it's imperfect, but predictive that it's not going to, that means it's, it's not going to work everywhere. And I think that they decided that it was sort of a, a statistical anomaly, but do you have a, is there any sort of concern that that might, you know, value might start working for, for that sort of reason that it might be some sort of statistical outlier or there might be some other reason that we just haven't yet uncovered for why uh, momentum for whatever reason hasn't worked there. Yeah. You know, I, I have a, um, this is uh, unlike many of my views entirely unempirical um, and totally a stereotype based on my own experience. Um, but I'll offer it with that full disclosure, which is that when I, when we, you know, trading Japanese stocks, it seems to me, that the U.S. is very anticipatory, right? So if you start if you start to see some economic development, say, holy smokes, you know, two quarters from now, that company is really going to benefit. The stock starts to go up, right? It, it goes up way in advance of the actual fundamentals. Whereas in Japan, it just seems like until you actually see the quarterly earnings statement where the earnings actually have gone up, the price doesn't move. Um, and so I think if you think of momentum as a proxy for um, uh, uh, for you know, real earnings momentum, right, or change in analyst expectations, right, that sort of up early updating of, of information before the actual news comes out, right, which I think what sort of how it works in, in the US. Well, imagine a market with no analyst coverage, really pessimistic, right? So if you look at surveys, Japanese investor surveys or Japanese CEO surveys, they're really pessimistic, Right. So they're saying, you know, so until you actually show them the numbers, they're not going to believe it. They're going to worry that something bad's going to happen. Um, and I think that to me, that's why momentum doesn't work. And I mean, that's also why value works really well. Right. It's that same set of things. Right. Which is you're penalizing a company too long for something that happened in the past without taking into account the, the mean reverting or 
recovery potential that's embedded in the stock. It makes perfect sense that it's been um, it's been moribund for so long that you would require you got to show me the earnings rather than sort of suggesting that they're going to happen. That it makes com- complete intuitive right. sense. Whereas here in the U.S., we say, "Well, I'm going to produce you know half." half the world's cars in 10 years are going to be electric and I'm going to have hundred percent market share of that. And my margins are going to be amazing. We're like, Oh, great. Well, that's such a good plan. Absolutely. Let's underwrite that. Don't you think you could get 60% market share, but that's, that's, yeah, that's the U S market. Well, I guess the risk in the U S is that it moves so quickly that you sort of feel the need to be in front of it. Otherwise you miss the move because it's so closely scrutinized and uh, really the, uh, the way that you've missed over the last decade is just by, um, by not paying enough, really, by not paying up, by not believing. I know, I know, I know. Against it, gets, it goes against every bone in my value. That's about it. about it. I mean, when you said that there was a lot of pessimism in Japan, that sort of that did it did excite me a little bit. It made me think that I should have a closer look. Um, yeah, but the, as, as we were talking about, you know, I think, you know, met, value investing is, is meta analytic, right? Value investors think, you know, it's not about first order thinking, uh, do I like the stock or not? It's, it's, you know, what's the, what's, what, what consensus is embedded in the price and how likely is our events to come out ahead or behind that consensus and value investors think, well, the higher consensus is the more likely it is to be disappointed. Right. right? And that's sort of our meta thinking, but as, as, you know, as we both talked about, you know, uh, that's not been the right, you don't, you haven't wanted to be a meta analyst. You, you, you just wanted to be a first order thinker, right? If you like the product, you like the company, just go buy it, buy it today in size, right? Um, if you like the brand, right? Or if you come up with an idea, like I like payments, right? If you like payments, just like buy payment stocks as soon as possible, right? That's been the lesson. Um, and all of the clever things that we've thought of, of like, well, what about the expectation, expectations investing and, you know, what about fundamental earnings momentum? What about quality filters? You know, none of that stuff has worked uh, uh, in the U.S. of late, uh, with the exception of since uh, now we're entering a new phase where we can start saying until Q1 of 20, we're now where this blissful world where value is back. So um, hopefully now we'll, we'll get to start talking about why we're right all the time and how we've been right for years. We were just too early. Well, I hope you're right. Uh, I don't trust it at all, but uh, that's just, that's <laughs> yeah, just, well, you're a value investor. You're supposed to be somewhat pessimistic. Um, Dan, the paper is counter cyclical investing. Uh, where can folks uh, find it or track you down and follow along with on, what on you're our doing? website, uh, www.fordadcap.com. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, we also do a weekly, uh, weekly research uh, email list covers a whole range of investing topics. It's endlessly fascinating. I promise. Yeah, I receive it. I can I can attest to that. Uh, I'm a big fan. Uh, Dan Rasmussen, Verdad Capital. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Dan. <laughs>